Welcome to the Holistic Pilgrimage Podcast, where seekers of health find support, inspiration, and a light along the journey to balance in mind, body, and spirit. Here, my guests and I discuss our own uniquely personal and conscious path to health, which may include functional plant-based nutrition, healthy lifestyle habits, personal development, and mindfulness. Guests are encouraged to share their own unique journey, personal experiences, and perspective. However, the views expressed by the guests may not necessarily reflect my own personal views as the host. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of a trained medical care provider. Please discuss any potential lifestyle changes with your medical practitioner. If you enjoy this program, please subscribe and share on Facebook and other social media. I would like the content to reach a wide audience, and you can help. Since this podcast has been newly released, it would be great to see it climb the charts in iTunes to get posted on the new and noteworthy list. If you think this content is valuable and informative, please go on iTunes and write a review so that those at iTunes will notice that there is quite a bit of traffic to this podcast. In addition, you may also donate to the show to help defray the website and hosting costs by going to www.holisticpilgrimage.com and click on Donate in the upper right-hand corner. Your help is very much appreciated. Enjoy the show. Today, I am talking with Laura Palanchi, who has such an awesome background. Currently, she is a nutritional therapy practitioner in northern New Jersey, is a 21-day sugar detox coach, and she is a student of restorative exercise techniques. She is a certified Pilates instructor and has an associate degree in dance. She also has a bachelor's degree in anthropology with a minor in African studies. And was even stationed in Paraguay as a Peace Corps volunteer. Oh yeah, and she's also my cousin. Welcome to the show, Laura. Hi. I noticed that you have been interested in nutrition like I have been for quite a while. What originally sparked your interest? So, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Yeah, I think I've always been interested in it. My mother has always been kind of up on the latest, like what was healthy back in the day. So, you know, she was doing the low-fat thing, and then we were doing Atkins, we were doing this and that. So it was just something always on my radar. It just never, like I would always read it in my spare time. So I figured, well, I might as well study it if I'm just going to always be reading it anyway. And what is nutritional therapy, and how did you get interested in it? Yeah, so nutritional therapy is the school that I went to to get certified as a certified nutritional therapy practitioner based out of Washington. And basically, they use the idea that health problems that we're seeing more and more today in the modern world are resulting from a weakness in the body's um, foundations because of nutritional deficiency. So the foundations that they taught us are digestion, blood sugar regulation, mineral balance, fatty acid balance, and hydration. That's kind of like the basic foundation. And once you have those things under control, everything else kind of balances itself out. Um, Basically, nutritional therapists want to help people understand and reverse the effects that the modern diet, what it is today, and what, what you would call like the standard American diet has on people. So we teach them lifestyle changes, 
or nutritional changes that they can do to build their bodies back up and feel better. Um, I became interested in it because I actually went to one, first of all, so that's how I learned about it. And it resonated with me, and it made the most sense with my anthropological background. So also there's there's a good amount of science coming out now with different studies, and I do like to look at that, like scientifically, you know, a lot of the correlation versus causation studies, which have shaped many of the dietary guidelines that, that we have today, are being questioned, which is which I think they should be, because those studies are just, I don't know, very flimsy. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I found out about it. I was working with one, and then just researching more, and then going for it. What kinds of studies now are coming out to challenge certain aspects of health as we thought we knew it? Well, um, a lot of people are seeing now... You know, there's the, the low fat, you know, don't have butter, and now kind of butter is being exonerated. And people aren't saying that it's going to cause um, high cholesterol and all the stuff that was kind of drilled into our heads in the 80s and 90s. Um, a lot of studies use, like the, the nurse study, there's a lot of correlation studies. So they would write down, you know, oh, I ate this, and here's a food log of what I had. And they're not very accurate because... You know, can you remember what you ate the whole day accurately? Are you going to lie a little bit? And it was a 10-year-long study, and it's just like they were finding out that, um, you know, okay, well, correlation. So I stepped on a rock today, and then my hair fell out. Okay, so people who step on rocks lose their hair. We shouldn't step on rocks. Kind of like that. So uh, they just kind of, I don't know, to me it's not the best. But it's a good way to start something, I think, but I don't think people should be making like, okay, this is the end all be all. Like that's a good way to be like, oh, maybe we should study stepping on rocks more with the hair falling out instead of like, don't step on rocks, guys, your hair is going to fall out. And, you know, the interesting part was for a lot of my life, I've had high cholesterol. And then I finally, <laughs> uh, you know, went on a plant-based diet. I lowered it. And now, you know, a lot of things are coming out challenging the fact that the low cholesterol. Just one thing I'd like to say is that I know in some ways nutritional therapy and, and that kind of um, practice has been getting some criticism from the vegan and vegetarian movements these days. But although I eat mostly plant foods, I'm really interested in what connects people, what philosophical points we all have in common rather than what separates us. So uh, any of the readings that I've done, um, I've been very interested to have them and, and think about different facets of health uh, and not just have it either one side or the, or the other. You know, diet's so funny. It seems to resemble like politics or religion. I like to explore a lot of perspectives. So this is a great conversation to have. Yeah, I mean, on the bottom of it, we're all just trying to make people healthy and change how things are being done now. You know, like, just not working. And is nutritional therapy a type of functional nutritional modality? Or in other words, does it look to the root of people's health challenges? Yeah, definitely. I'm not a doctor. I can't treat or diagnose anybody. But with my clients, it's more thinking outside of the medical mindset in a more holistic approach. So, for example, if they come to me and say, oh, you know, my calcium is low, what do I do? And it's like, yeah, but look at everything else. How's your digestion? Are you digesting the nutrients you need for the cofactors for calcium? Are you getting hydrated? Are you having magnesium? Like looking at all this other stuff, not just, okay, your, your calcium is low. Take this supplement. I know that nutritional therapy does stress bioindividuality. Um, how would you describe bioindividuality? It's basically the concept that everyone is different and what works mm -hmm. and was good for one person might not work for another person. So 
everyone to react. Like you could tell everyone, okay, you all should be taking this much amount of fat, like uh, 30% fat. Some people might do well with that. Some people might need more. Some people might need less. It's just everyone has to find their sweet spot. And that really takes kind of diving in and looking at what you're doing, what's working, keeping track of things, like being a scientist about yourself. Also, it kind of looks into your ancestors. So it takes into account your ancestry, what were typical dishes for them, what were they eating. Perhaps someone who is from Europe can handle milk while someone who is from Asia can. Um, you know, nowadays, it's a little more complicated because the lineages are all mulled up, but it's a starting point to look at for some people. Um, so yeah, you just have to kind of experiment. Do elimination diets, keep track of food, and just really begin to notice how you react to them. Exactly. I like what you said about being a scientist for your health, you know, and that's what my website's all about, you know, that everybody's on their own journey and, and try to figure out what it is that people need. Exactly. It sounds like nutrition therapists advocate real food. What is real food? Is that the same as whole food? So yeah, I would say real food, whole food, it's, it's all kind of under the same umbrella. It's just food that's naturally found on the earth in nature. It's not processed or boxed or packaged or made from a factory or some ingredients that you can't pronounce. That's like a mile long list. Pretty much food, yeah, food that you could like feel good about eating and not like, well, it, it resembles food like substance and it's full of sugar, so it tastes really good. Lately, I've been taking a look at what is whole food, really? What's the difference between one type of processing and another? Say, all right, like dehydrating, that's a definitely a process. Mm -hmm. Is it going to result in you know nutrient loss or what about blending and what about juicing what about you know cooking and things like that do you have any kind of hard and fast definition of what's processed and what's unprocessed I mean there's small processing like if you're let's say you are going to make bread and you still can sprout your brain brain you still can sprout your brain <laughs> then you eat them and you're a zombie um like you there's some things that you have to process so let's say you are going to if you do choose bean bread then processing it you kind of have to because you're not going to go out in the field and like eat a stock of wheat whereas like cooking um blending all that i don't really i mean it is processing it and it's, it's such a tiny amount compared to what companies do that to me i don't even really count it i was looking at this usd table it talks about the different retention rates of different foods whether certain things are raw or certain things are cooked uh, or reheated or if it was processed first and then cooked and then something else yeah that's a really interesting table to take a look at and there's some small differences. I feel like if you're going to eat a broccoli or a cooked broccoli, it's 10 times better than eating a fruit roll-up, you know? So. And then with this too, I've been reading a lot of some Sally Fallon's work and Weston A. Price in the last few months. Could you give us some background about Weston A. Price? Yeah, so uh, Weston A. Price and Dr. Francis Pottinger are two of the people who the Nutritional Therapy Association kind of calls the nutritional pioneers. Um, Dr. Price was a dentist who was just noticing in his practice how people just had such crowded teeth and cavities, and he's like, what's going on? And he decided to take a trip around the world with his wife and study different cultures who were still kind of eating their traditional diet. And... 
he um, published a book from his studies called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, which I have opened, but I have not read totally yet, although it's fun to look at the pictures. So this book kind of details his travels and, and the studies he did on each various culture. And basically, he's saying that the normal like way that the people were had these wide faces and the teeth came in straight. They didn't need orthodontics. They didn't get cavities. And he was like, why is this happening? And then he saw when modern foods were introduced into these cultures that had like flour, sugar, processed vegetable oils, and just processed foods that these the deficiencies started to come in. They would get shorter, their teeth would get more crowded, they would have more health problems, dental issues. So that's what made him write the book, and he got really into the, the nutrition after that. And then Dr. Pottinger was another doctor. He was working at a sanitarium, but he had these, this cat study going on a little later in his career where he looked at nutritional deficiencies through the generations, correlating with what the cats were eating. He would feed some raw meat and raw milk and cooked meat and cooked milk and all these different variations of it. Just finding that the cats who were eating the, the food for cats were living like cats and they were healthy and they were doing great. And then the cats who were not getting all the vitamins and minerals that cats needed were starting to, to degenerate and degenerate. And each, each kitten, <laughs> each litter was just getting worse. And, and it took them four generations to get the cats back to where they should be once they kind of degenerated. If they could even reproduce, some of them can even reproduce. So it's kind of saying like, all right, well, the food that your parents and your grandparents are eating directly affects what you eat in terms of how did you get a full nutrient profile when you were born or were you lacking and then the food you were eating as you were growing and now they're, we're kind of coming back to a circle and being like okay well this is kind of happening now in society so look at how the kids are like there's all these allergies and ADD and people are I don't know almost like we're domesticated or we're very like engaging almost I want to say and then just not moving and we're just eating crap so I don't know it's kind of like happening on a human scale this cat experiment. I heard about another study too where you had a cat who gave birth to a litter of kittens and then somehow the vitamin A was taken out of her diet, mm. right? And then she gave birth to another litter of kittens and that litter of kittens didn't actually have any eyes. It was so wild, <laughs> yes. And they put back the vitamin A and then the kittens uh, that she later had had eyes again. So it's really interesting what's going on now and um, I hope that folks look deeper at things. There's Sally Fallon. Wondering where she comes in with West Today Price. I wonder if she advocates the same philosophy or if she differs in any way. Sally Fallon, as far as I know, definitely advocates it. I mean, she is the co-founder and the president for the West Today Price Foundation. So <laughs> I would think that she's still a great well. I think she kind of took what he found and grew it from that. So whatever he was saying to people to do, you know, she took his stuff and like made it more accessible. Maybe I'm not really sure. I haven't really looked into it that much, but you know, she explains the importance of returning to organic farming, using pasture fed livestock, not to feed lots, um, whole traditional foods prepared properly, how they should be like soaking and sprouting, nuts, grains and seeds. She really wants people to return to an economy based small scale, like organic production, not big food conglomerates and processors, uh, going back to independent farmers, supporting your farmers. You were saying that Sally Fallon, she makes things a little bit more digestible, I think, for people, especially her nourishing traditions. And I enjoy hearing about what traditional foods were like in that book, like fermented foods, soaked nuts and seeds, like you mentioned, grains, and her promotion of, of raw foods. And when we say living foods, you know, that's what we mean with the soaked and sprouted nuts seeds and grains although you know some of the recipes like i don't know 
marinated brains and things like that I might not be able to <laughs> might not be able to eat but um you know her collection was very intriguing to me from an anthropological standpoint and I know another thing that we both have in common is our background in anthropology did you have any kind of connection and intrigue like I did and if so could you reflect a bit about it that, that book is actually one of the books that was required for the course so I definitely have it. <laughs> when I first like was looking at her, we were in the course, I had the idea, I was like, maybe I'll cook my way through nourishing traditions like that movie, uh, Julie and Julia. <laughs> I think I did one recipe. It was good. But um, I made sauerkraut. So I do have my bachelor's in cultural anthropology. My real love is actually evolutionary anthropology. I love learning about like the different species and the bones and the primitive cultures. That was my favorite. But the culture one was very interesting as well. I got to go study in Mexico. So I saw the traditional foods that the, the Mexican city and the Mayans. Um, I got to go to Kenya and really get a ground by view of what they were doing on the coastal regions of Kenya. It was an anthropology course too for the summer. And yeah, that wow. was awesome. You know, I, I definitely saw the traditional foods. We even ate like with with one of those tribes sitting on the ground where everybody kind of uses their hands to eat from the rice bowl in the middle. It was awesome. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I mean, so what originally got me into all of it was I started to learn more about the paleo movement, which kind of my interest got peaked from the anthropological standpoint. Um, but so that's kind of what really got me interested, like connecting to anthropology. And I also thought it was interesting, like with Weston A. Price, the whole his like finding of what the other cultures had in common with each other were, um, you know, people weren't eating the industrialized, refined, denatured foods, didn't have all the corn syrup and flour, pasteurized, homogenized, low fat, all that stuff. The vegetable oils, especially, um, you know, food coloring, who knows what that is. Um, he also found that a lot of the traditional cultures did contain some sort of animal protein fat, so fish or seafood or fowl, eggs, milk, reptiles, insects. So uh, other parts of it all, insects are delicacy. I don't know if I'd ever go, oh, I've had the exo bars with the cricket flour they were they were pretty good they were pretty good but i don't know if i should like go and eat a cricket <laughs> but i give credit to the people who can do that because you know in our culture it's just i don't think we could turn it around <laughs> we'd have to like totally restart and be like no bugs are great he also found that kind of diets contained like four times more minerals and vitamins and calcium than we get now so it was just so like mineral dense and, and vitamins um you know like you're saying some products were eaten raw and the enzyme count was really good with the raw food even the raw milk if they ate raw fish like you know sushi um right and then like soaking and sprouting the grains and the nuts and the seeds fermenting leavening just to neutralize the anti-nutrients that are found in those types of foods and then that the fat content kind of varied from like 30% to 80% with each culture, but there was definitely fat. There's just no low fat. So <laughs> I don't know why we ever thought that was a good idea. Someone um, in my family works on a biodynamic all farm. Salt, they all consumed, they would have like bone broth, gelatin, and all that stuff. But basically her book kind of goes, has all those types of, 
recipes in there. <laughs> yeah, there's the brain and there's like the kidney and it's the awful and all that. Um, I myself have tried the heart and liver. I don't know about other things, but I... How did you like them? Yeah, liver wasn't so bad. I was never raised on it or anything, but I did have an English boyfriend at the time who knew how to make it. I'd never had it before that, like five years ago. So he made a typical liver and onions. And I was like, that's not that bad. You know, it was the heart. The heart wasn't bad either, but you just can't really think about it. (laughs) No, it's fine. Oh, yeah, and the breakfast foods, of course, too. Yep. (laughs) When you were in uh, Mexico, South America, um, uh, what fats did you see being cooked? Unfortunately, with Latin America, it is now very, they don't really use traditional foods much anymore. It's kind of the whole, it's been saturated with cheap and easy processed foods. So unfortunately, they are cooking with vegetable oils, corn oil, vegetable oils. So it wasn't good. You know, they, they had, they suffer from, especially in Paraguay, there's a lot of diabetes going on. I mean, they, they consume a lot of sugar, a lot of carbs and processed foods now alongside with some more traditional dishes so they yeah it's kind of unfortunate down there um they would make this this one dish that was just like totally fried well a lot of it fried but in vegetable and i i actually couldn't eat it it would make my stomach hurt it was too much and and kenya i cannot remember it was like 10 years ago now so um i did write it down though i have somewhere the woman i was shadowing for a day she was showing me how she cooked and we went to the market and we bought food for that lunch and then we cooked it and she was writing everything down as she was cooking and i have to find that right i wonder how common like you know olive oil would be over there right olives over there yeah i can't remember but there was olive oil in paraguay that i would buy i don't know that people was adulterated how it was, but but uh, the good thing though, we had a lot of honey. A lot of honey was was easy to find. Yeah, hives and everything. Oh, cool. Since you were there with the Peace Corps, you were doing environmental work there. Did your group ever address any of those dietary issues and concerns? Uh, we could basically kind of teach what we wanted, incorporate in what we wanted. So a lot of the people we're trying to get school gardens started or do more with the school gardens. Every school has to have a garden and they were incorporating it with, with that, like, Oh, we're going to grow these lettuce and tomatoes and what can, what, like what vitamins does this have and what can we make? So people were doing that. I didn't focus on a school garden with mine. We tried it. It was hard because mine was more in a city instead of a rural area. Back to the fats for cooking. What kind of fats often do you use when you're uh, making food? I try and go for about 30% fat, and I use coconut oil for cooking mostly. I'll use olive oil um, on salads. If I'm making a green smoothie, I usually throw in half of an avocado. Once in a while, I will use a, like a duck fat to cook, but I don't get it that often. It's kind of expensive. Oh, oh butter. I'm glad you mentioned butter. It seems like a lot of people are obsessed with it now these days. What <laughs> sort of renewal of interest in butter? But why is everybody obsessed with butter? Is there actually nutritional benefits to butter? Oh, yeah. So if you're getting grass-fed, pastured, raw butter, even better, although I don't know if we can get that in Jersey, um, you're getting the vitamin D, you're getting the vitamin K. So with the, with the cow 
was eating, if they were raised on pasture, you're going to get all the stuff, the vitamins and, and the fat soluble that they were able to, to kind of make. So it's in the butter. So you're getting that and it's a, it's a good fat. So it'll help transport the fat soluble vitamins as well. It'll help you feel fuller for longer. And it just tastes pretty good. <laughs> you're just kind of getting a random like thing at the shop or at a, a shopping thing. I don't know what the quality is. I, re- I don't really, I can't say what's that benefit would be other than just kind of having a fat for fat sake but definitely you find the right source you can get some really good vitamins definitely and the and the kind of butter that's like orange basically (laughs) yeah yeah they get own butter that's from the cows there so that stuff's nearly you know orange so (laughs) well then you know you're getting some good well you can get it from the store it's like almost white but that you can see like the, the good stuff in there yeah, and you have to watch out because some, like, I tend to get the Kerrygold brand because it is grass-fed. Unfortunately, it's from Ireland, so it's kind of far, <laughs> if you're looking at, like, the ecological footprint. And now they're starting to put canola oil in some of them, which is just ridiculous. I don't know why they need to go into that, but I don't know. Some people still think it's healthy to eat that. I thought canola oil was healthy. <laughs> no, what, what is the deal with canola oil? Why is it not so healthy for us? So all those vegetable oils that are coming from seeds or vegetables, they have to be processed in a crazy way to get oil out of it. Because if you think about an avocado or an olive, those are, you can like squeeze an olive and see the fat. It's not that hard to get the fat out of it. But think about a seed. You can't squeeze a seed and get fat out of it. So you have to use all these chemicals and like process the hell out of these things to just get the oil. And then they're very unstable oil. So heating them, cooking them, just you're putting something in your body that's unstable, rancid, you don't know how long it's been on the shelf, what else is in it, adulterated. It's just something I would definitely stay away from, especially, you know, if you want to kind of keep your omega-6 and omega-3s in line because they, they're pretty high in omega-6. Yes, high in omega-6. They have some omega-3s, but apparently, you know, because of the process that canola oil goes through, Omega-3 is basically useless, you know, in comparison to the fact that it's partially hydrogenated and, uh, you know, it's also known as a trans fat. So that's exactly. And, and, uh, you know, if you're not getting organic, often it's uh, genetically modified. So, yeah, stay away from that. And and it's the heating, too. What do you think about this? A lot of um, recipes in nourishing traditions have uh, the extra virgin olive oil. Um, do you think that, you know, I, I've heard that it has a low smoke smoke point so that, you know, if it's cooking, then it might get damaged when, in the heating process. Do you think that's true for olive oil? Because I think there's some kind of debate about that. Yeah, there is a debate. I, I've seen a couple studies saying it has a higher heat tolerance than we think. And I've seen other things like, oh, it's pretty low. So maybe just eating it like not heated. I myself do not use it to cook with. I just use it on salads, so I don't really heat it. Um, and I haven't really looked into it recently, but I've just kind of been using, like, the coconut oil and butter and things with a higher smoke point. Yeah, coconut oil is really nice and stable, so that's helpful. Yeah, for salads for me, I would use olive oil. Um, flaxseed oil is great. 
you know, but not good at all to cook with because it, of course when you have the omega-3s in them it makes it like you said an unstable oil I think it has a smoke point of like 100 degrees or something like that so you just want to stay away from that you know with the heating and the partially hydrogenated oils and the heating of that it creates free radicals you know and that can create a lot of issues in the body from inflammation issues with insulin um you know, there's a whole laundry list of things that are really detrimental to our health. So now going back to Latin America, you, it, was it in Paraguay where you were going through your vegetarian phase and then you just kind of dropped it? Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So before going to Paraguay, I was, uh, well, I was vegan and then I was vegetarian for about two years. Got to Paraguay, was fine the first day. <laughs> um, my host mother was like, all right, well, we'll feed you vegetarian. They don't know what, they don't really like know what it is because everyone needs meat there. And then on the second day, she gave me soup and it had beef in it. And she's just like, that's, here you go, here's your lunch. And I was like, all right, well, um, here we go. And it was just a matter of like not offending your host family and the culture and just assimilating. So I was like, all right, I'll do it. And it was fine. I, there wasn't any reaction. I felt bad because I was like eating this piece of beef and there was a cow out in the yard looking at, like eating me, like eating this hay and looking at me. <laughs> like, oh. So I decided when I moved into my own house, I went back to vegetarian, except when I was out in the community. And my friend, who was a very strict vegetarian, uh, did not do well with the cultural assimilation, honestly. Um, people wouldn't, wouldn't really invite her because they didn't know what to feed her, didn't really understand it. So I think that she ended up leaving the Peace Corps early. That wasn't the reason, but it didn't help, you know? Um, so yeah, I pretty much was was doing that until around October or August of 2010 when I really started to look into other things. and, and I had a lot of time. I had the internet in my house, so it wasn't like living in a hut. And I was kind of reading other ideas and other areas, and that's where I kind of switched my thoughts on everything after a lot of research. So, learning about all these different traditional foods, and and I, I was just thinking about Anthony Bourdain and just you know all the fats and stuff that they cook in he was in uh, Burma that was the episode I was watching but um you know I there have, has been a little controversy over the Mediterranean diet people say oh yeah it was low fat you know and they just use this you know beautiful uh, olive oil and things like that to cook with but a lot of people were saying that really it was higher in meat content than uh, than what people realize what do you think other than what I learned about it from a long time ago, the Mediterranean, I haven't really looked into it that much recently, but I would honestly think from like a cultural standpoint back in the day that it probably was higher in fat, but I don't know today how much meat they're eating versus carbs versus fat. I'd have to look into it more. Reminds me of the, the Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan and talks about how American culture, it's hard because we don't exactly have the roots like other cultures do. And we might not know exactly what foods we should be really eating. And we're really more informed about what's um, on the commercials and what are the um, restaurants and fast food establishments that we're passing when we're, you know, driving around town or something like that. 
I think that nowadays, uh, probably a phenomenon that goes on is, you know, they use Mediterranean diet and it's such a romanticized place, Greece, you know, with the beautiful olive trees and you have these beautiful fruits and vegetables so fresh and beautiful nuts and seeds. And, you know, people might say, you know, yeah, it's going to be higher in the plant foods than it is on the, you know, meat-based foods. And where, you know, um, ancestrally it might have not been the case, you know, so... I was listening to a little Daniel Vitalis, and he's interesting because he was a raw foodist. I think he actually is a raw foodist in in the sense that he eats raw meat too. But um, you know, he has a talk where he t he talks about how people are domesticated, you know, because of agricultural practices and things. Years and years and years, generations after generations, we've become domesticated, and that we as a culture are like afraid of different wild kind of, even if we see like dirt or if you see people that are just living outside for a week without a shower, you know, you might be kind of skeeved out or something like that. And have you heard anything about that and kind of this rewilding and. Oh yeah, definitely. And in fact, I was just reading a very interesting article last night about how our kids are captive and even more so than ever before, how we're like keeping them inside and how it's just totally changing them in the way they move and think and everything. Yeah, I can send you the link if you want to link it in the show notes. Yeah, we're like in cages. I know you mentioned something before about that kind of that we're kind of kept domesticated. So it kind of reminded me of Daniel Vitalis. Right. And, and you know, there is a fine line. I mean, I'm not saying I want to go outside and like sleep in the puddle out there in the cold. <laughs> but it's like, how much are we going to entrap ourselves? He was saying that because of the farming practices, people started developing like back problems from that. And, you know, he almost describes before that the hunter-gatherer approach where, yeah, it might not take that long to hunt and gather and your family has food and then you can basically part of the rest of the time that you have. So that was kind of interesting to hear about and think about. My own thesis work for um, my master's degree, you know, it did have to do with spirituality and uh, songs that people sing for a saint in Ireland. But I realized that there's a lot of things going on now that we're trying to kind of recapture what we think or reimagine what things might have been like, you know, thousands of years ago. And we kind of romanticize and think that it was so wonderful and you know and so a lot of people are going back to oh what was it like in ancient times or even pre-christian times or you know with uh, people's obsession with stone circles well my obsession with stone circles but you know with different ancient cultures and you know they think that maybe they didn't have the problems that we do today and you know it was more natural and we get back to the land and everything else and it's very interesting and and also with like ancient traditions, like, you know, we have people who love yoga and uh, different kinds of cultural, like kirtan chanting and different kinds of like old indigenous kind of traditions that people have culturally. Yeah, it's kind of like the pendulum swung one way far away from it. And now it's like swinging back towards it all. So a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, you know, you go back to ancient India or you go back to, you know, ancient China or all sorts of different places um, where life wasn't the way it is now. So in your bio on your website, um, you said, 
I'm always learning and I love those moments when something so profound comes along, it changes my long-held cultural beliefs and propels me forward to a more aligned lifestyle. So I know you talked a lot about different things, but do you have any other examples of what has been profound and that has challenged your own beliefs? Yeah, definitely everything I'm learning with the natural movement, movement, I guess you could call it. So definitely, like, I'm following the work of Katie Bowman, who's a biomechanist who goes over, like, the way our bodies move and how we are moving them so differently from what they need to be moved as that we're developing all these issues from sitting and not moving and staying in this position and that position. I just came back from a two-day workshop doing restorative exercise and just really finding out how I've lived my life up until now and what it's done to my body and the way I stood, even just standing incorrectly has given me this one issue or, you know, this is short and I can't move it. And I always thought I was so flexible, but really when I get into the proper alignment, my muscles are tight. So I would have just never thought of this at all. And, you know, a lot of people you know, are living in so many different ways. And, you know, a lot of things I have been coming across lately is like, what is that doing with our genes? You know, what is that doing for further generations when we want to have babies and everything else, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all like movement at a cellular level. If you're not moving uh, one part of your body, the, the cells there just die. I mean, they're like, oh, well, they don't need me anymore, so we'll just die. And then you have these imbalances. And the same thing, I mean, women's hips, the way that, that we are not squatting properly or even squatting at all anymore is um, kind of moving the hips so that the pelvis opening is in a different position and, and it's not as wide. Um, yes, I would definitely check out that stuff. It's very interesting. Exactly. And that goes back to that study about the cats with no eyes, like I mentioned before, that, you know, genetically, and that's epigenetics, right? When, of course, that mother is still alive. And all of a sudden, you know, because it has no vitamin A, its genes said, okay, we're just not going to have or produce any eyes <laughs> for this litter. You know, at least this is what I've come to understand from what I've been reading lately. Um, so everyone's diet must evolve and change, of course, at some point, of course. Uh, but for you lately, what is a typical day like in terms of your own meal plan? I usually have for breakfast eggs with coconut oil and some uh, some veggie. I don't always like be like, oh, it's breakfast, I have to have eggs, but that's just usually what I have. I will have leftovers, you know, whatever. Then maybe I'll have for lunch some form of protein with a salad or even a green smoothie with some form of protein um the thing with smoothies is i i think they're they're great as long as it's not a meal replacement just from a digestion standpoint getting them the chewing going on and like starting the digestion plus then drinking a green smoothie i think is a great way to have them so i always try and have it with something that i'm eating as well and then for dinner, I kind of have the same, some, some protein and maybe like a sweet potato if I worked out and then vegetables. I was kind of getting a meal delivery thing going on for a little bit until it's <laughs> like, it was really expensive. It was so convenient. I loved it. And I've been having jello lately that I've been making myself. 
Yeah, with the uh, Great Lakes gelatin. You were mentioning smoothies too, and I, I have been thinking a lot about smoothies in that, well, I uh, have been eating like for the past few years, like high fruit, uh, you know, green juices and smoothies and stuff like that. And I just, I lost a lot of weight and then I just kind of plateaued for like a year. And then I had a lot of stress uh, last year. And so I kept gaining weight. Like if I splurged a little bit one weekend, I'd put a little weight on and then I wouldn't be able to lose it. And so still using a lot of high fruit and high, the smoothies and everything else. I got my cortisol tested or my adrenal response tested. And so uh, I have high morning cortisol. I decided to do a little research and see what kind of books are out there to see if I could find a good plan for me. And I, I found one where it's more balanced. You know, you have your protein, you have your fat, your grain, your fruit and vegetable uh, at each meal. And then then in between you have a snack of like a fruit and a fat or a veggie and a fat or something like that. But it's also very portion controlled. And so I also have been really conscious about um, consuming whole foods, you know, in, in their whole form. And I think, and a lot of people, they heal on the smoothies because, um, you know, they claim it's because it kind of gives their digestion a break. And I think that's helpful for a while. Um, but of course, it's all about bio-individuality. It might, you know, for a while, it might be good for somebody. And then they might have to uh, kind of change it up a little bit. It can help people get to where they need to be. Sure. And then switch things up when they need to. I think that, you know, some people, if, if they're really attracted to this kind of like a raw vegan or vegan kind of lifestyle, like for me, I was struggling for a while because I was like, but I want to eat certain foods, but I'm really not supposed to. And I know that if I eat, like now I eat grains and I'm all right with it. But, before, you know, with smoothies, there's been studies that say that like, you know, people who eat smoothies, uh, they are more hungry later when they get to have food again or that it spikes an insulin response and it also makes it quicker. Insulin is spiked at a, a quicker speed. There's some material out there about different things, but of course it's all about each individual person. I was wondering if you you kind of had any ideas about that, if you heard that kind of information. Yeah, I think um, with juicing especially, it can spike the insulin because you're not getting the fiber with it. When I myself do a smoothie, it's always with the whole thing intact and just kind of ground up. And then I will always have a fat in there to help to, to make it feel full. I usually have a lot of stuff in mind. And I honestly have been hearing a lot more about the soup, using like a soup kind of smoothie, <laughs> um, the soup fast and all that. And I'm thinking that would even be better. Because, yeah, some people's digestion, they, they can't really handle the raw foods yet. Like if, if their digestion is pretty bad, having a salad is going to be worse. So maybe a smoothie would be easier for them or even better the soup because it's cooked the vegetables. They're not as um, harsh, I want to say. They're, they're like kind of already that pre-digested. I think they definitely can be a pretty good tool for some people, especially if you need to get in more vitamins and, and vegetables in general. You want to pack them in. And that's where, you know, you have bone broth or, you know, of course, there could be a vegetable broth as well. That's helpful, especially for people who are really sick. 
So when you are feeling um, super healthy and eating what makes you feel the best, doing physical activity, getting enough sleep, enough sunshine, uh, do you find that there is a spiritual connection to feeling your best? And, and if so, what is it like? So I honestly don't really think I've ever had all the stars align at all the same time. Um, within like my sleep's perfect. I have vitamin D. I am playing. I am eating perfect all the same time. But when I do at least have the sleep and the diet pretty good, I feel almost lighter. I don't feel heavy and bogged down. And that's just a really freeing feeling. Exactly. I think sleep is, is so key. If people out there listening are having issues with uh, adrenal fatigue or uh, high cortisol or something like that, of course, sleep is very important and that will help to restore the body. So important. It's more and more we're studying sleep and it's, it, it, I would almost say if you need to fix something, fix that first. And it's kind of the hardest thing to fix because our culture is just not set up for us to sleep properly in the way that we should be sleeping. Um, you know, I mean, I would say to people, don't even work out four hours before going to bed because it's going to spike your cortisol unless you're doing like yoga or something low. But and then, you know, we go home, we go to the gym, we work out, we go home, we eat, we go to bed. It's, our, our world is a little mm -hmm. against us. <laughs> it's backwards. You know, I, I wish we could like kind of restructure the workday so that everybody gets up and does their physical activity and we start the business day at like 10 or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. The nine to five is like, it's so antiquated. I really hope more and more businesses change it because, come on, like think outside the box. People. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of states have kind of wellness leaders in different you know, in different workplaces. Like I'm a wellness leader uh, at my school. And uh, yeah, it would be great if we could actually, you know, make that kind of change <laughs> to the actual workday. And, and actually change it, too, with the cycles of the, the seasons, too. Like getting up now, and uh, it's so sad because I'm, I am I can't wake up with the sun, and I have to, like, I find myself waking up at, like, 2.30 going, wait a minute, am I supposed to be awake now? And I have to look at, you know, the time, and I'm like, no, like, <laughs> go back to bed, because sometimes I'm afraid that my alarm won't wake me up or something. But if the sun shines out, you know, you can't help but get up and, you know, wake up. At least for me. <laughs> so um, you were mentioning to me once about how one's food choices should not be based in morality. And, and this goes back to what you were talking about for your, your daily meal plan and things like that. Could you tell me more about that, a sense of morality with food? Kind of going more into the territory of emotions and eating. It's just basically food is not good or bad. Like it's not a moral thing. And what is morality anyway? In our culture, morality is one thing. In another culture, it's something else. Taking a step back and looking at a piece of cake and being like, oh, cake is bad. So if I eat cake, then I'm bad. I'm being bad. Or, oh, a salad's good. If I eat salad, then I'm a good person. I'm being good. It's not going to get you anywhere. You're not, like, punishing yourself isn't going to help. Has it ever helped before? Probably not. So why, as a culture, do we need to perpetuate this and be like oh my god I'm bad I ate this cake I gotta go to the gym for five hours and just kind of almost we just keep perpetuating these eating disorders like binge eating and emotional eating and um bulimia and all these things that are just so bad you know food is supposed to be 
something that we celebrate with, something that sustains us, something that is enjoyable, not to to punish ourselves. I think about how like a lot of staff rooms at work, you know, people bring in brownies or cupcakes or something and everybody's kind of milling around looking at them like you know with their mouths watering for it and they're like oh I don't know if I should I want to be good and stuff like that like I'm like if you're gonna go for it like don't complain about it just have it enjoy it you know what I'm saying and somebody else was saying oh you're not gonna have any are you trying are you okay like (laughs) are you are you trying to be good I'm like I'm not trying to be good. I'm just, I don't eat sugar. <laughs> like, I just don't do it. <laughs> it's just something that I don't do, you know, or I try not to do, I'll say. But, you know, it's just very interesting, the wording and, you know, the semantics people use. Yeah, and it is. It's all about words. And, you know, we told ourselves what was moral and what wasn't. So we can exactly. say it's just words. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And do you have any resources for us, like any good books or podcasts, um, YouTube videos that I haven't already mentioned? Yeah, well, going back to that whole morality thing, um, a lot of this is what Isabel Fox and Duke talks about on her website. She's very interesting with the whole, you know, getting women to just not feel crazy around food. She's got a really good website. I love to listen to the Paleo for Women podcast because they go more into body image and more about women and, and dealing with the food issues and you know, it's not just about like, oh, eat this, this, and this. It's more about emotional issues around it and all of that. And then Katie Bowman's blog is just fantastic about the movement aspect of it all. So where can we find out more about you? If if I wanted to come see you, uh, how could I get in contact with you? So you can visit my website. It's yourbodyonnutrition.com. That's like kind of like your brain on drugs. So it's your body on nutrition. Or you can follow me on Facebook, Laura Polanci NTP. I'm also on Instagram, your body on nutrition as well. And I do have a Twitter account, although I really don't use it that much. So, I mean, you can kind of check it out, but I'll go on it like once a month. And you're in the northern New Jersey area, is that right? Yep, northwest Jersey. I also do a 21-day sugar detox group. So people who want to work on getting that sugar habit kicked um doing it with a group is awesome because you kind of get that accountability and it's more fun because you're not doing it alone and i want to start bringing it into uh like any businesses who want to run it with the people who work there as kind of a team building thing and anyone can join that from any location because it's, it's online it's conference calls and it's uh, facebook groups and everything so that's all on my website uh your body on nutrition.com definitely Thanks so much, Laura. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. You just heard the Holistic Pilgrimage podcast with Amy Lynn and Laura Palanchi. If you enjoyed the program, please click subscribe and share with your friends on Facebook and other social media outlets. Your help in spreading the word is very much appreciated. Please go to www.holisticpilgrimage.com to enjoy other podcasts, the blog, and more information about health coaching. Thank you.